Hello, listeners. On this show, I talk with everyday African Americans who are able to transform their passions and struggles into their dreams. I'm your host, Moses Tillman Young, and welcome to the Black Gold Podcast. this episode, I interview Akila Newton, the CEO of Big Dreamers, an all-ages activity book and an organization that celebrates Canadian Black history through educating and engaging students in tours around the nation that is based in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. In our conversation, Akila and I discuss the people that have influenced her starting Big Dreamers, how she started a nonprofit that offers performing arts training to youth in Montreal, and her incredible project Beyond February, a web series that focuses on the lives of ordinary black Canadians that have done extraordinary things. Welcome to the Black Gold Podcast. Today with me, I have Akila Newton, who is the CEO of Big Dreamers, an organization that is based out of Canada that focuses on the education of Black history, not only for American Black history, but also for Canadian Black history, and also finding the people that people usually would overlook as being a part of history and incorporating them back into not just Canadian Black history, but also Canadian history. And as a result of that, she has also published three books on those people and their different successes and their fame. So Akila Newton, welcome to the Black Gold Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me and thank you for that beautiful introduction. Absolutely. Well, first, I'm just curious, who do you look up to as a a Black history figure? So there's actually two females that I connect to the most. So Viola Desmond and Gloria Bayless. So these stories probably are not popular in the United States, but basically Viola Desmond is known as the Rosa Parks of Canada. So essentially, her story is really inspiring to me because she was well ahead of her time in the 40s and 50s. She ran a beauty school where she taught young Black girls how to do hair, uh, and then she had her own line of products as well. So for a woman to have her own business in the 40s and 50s was next to unheard of, and for a Black woman to do that is just surreal to me. So as she was expanding her business and traveling, to different cities to get her products in different salons, her car broke down. So she was in Nova Scotia in Canada, in New Glasgow, and she basically decided, okay, well, while I get my car fixed, I'm going to go see a movie. So a lot of people don't realize that Canada, you know, did deal with segregation. There's still a lot of racism here in Canada and Canada did have slavery and people just see Canada as this, you know, this beautiful, inclusive country, which it can be. I'm not trying to trash the country that I was born in, but you know, we still have many, many faults as well. So when she went to theater, 
she paid for her ticket, asked for a ticket to sit downstairs. Uh, and they said, no, you have to sit upstairs. Downstairs is whites only. She's like, well, no, I'm paying for a ticket to sit downstairs. I'm going to sit downstairs. So she sat downstairs, refused to move. She was aggressively ripped out of the theater. And she was a very, very classy woman, always done up to the nines. And the story goes that when she left the theater, she was missing a shoe. Her hair was all disheveled, but she just refused to back down. And she, she brought her case to court. Unfortunately, she lost the case, but she fought and fought for the rights of Black Canadians. And I just, I love her story so much. And it wasn't until 2010 that the government of Nova Scotia made an official apology for the wrongdoings that she experienced. But I mean, for many decades, her story is basically what pushed, you know, equal rights forward amongst other stories. But her story was basically one of the most, I guess, infamous stories of racial discrimination in Canada. And I just, I love how she really stood her ground. I love how she was ahead of her time. And I just, I love what she did for Black Canadians. And the other one that you mentioned was Gloria Bayless. Yes. So Gloria Bayless is also just another girl boss. I guess that's the term that the kids are using today. Uh, So Gloria Bayless as well, a similar story. She was discriminated against, but in a different capacity. So she immigrated from Barbados to Montreal, and she was a nurse. She applied for a job at a hotel to be a nurse, and it's actually the Queen Elizabeth Hotel, which is popularized here in Montreal because John Lennon and Yoko Ono actually stayed at that hotel, and they did their peace sitting. So it's funny how that hotel is meant to represent peace and love and unity, but years before, Gloria Bayless, when she went to apply for a job at that hotel, she basically was denied an interview simply because she was Black. And the reason that she found this out is because her colleague who was white went to apply for a job after her. And they said, yes, the job is the position still available. So Gloria is like, wait a second. I literally went the day before and you guys are telling me there is no job. My white colleague goes the day after and you're saying there is a job. No, something's not right here. So she basically took the hotel to court. It took 12 years to fight the case. The hotel was found guilty, but they had to pay something absurd, like a $20 fine. But because of her, you are not allowed to discriminate against people based off of their race, sexual orientation, religion, whatever it may be in Canada for employment. So she's just phenomenal. She also went on to become an entrepreneur and started a medical supplies company called Bayless Medical. She has since passed away, but her son now runs a company and the company is now a billion dollar company. So I love both of their stories so much. They are just so inspiring and I hope to accomplish a fraction of what they've accomplished. That sounds really incredible. And you highlight those, those people you consider to be your personal, personal heroes in your, in your books. And can you explain more about what your books are? Your company is called big dreamers and you have created it's uh, three volumes about it's you intentionally am I correct in saying this it was intentionally made for for younger kids in terms of them understanding and stuff because it's an activity book is what it is like a coloring book and everything like that can you explain more about oh there it is Yes. So essentially this book, Big Dreamers, the Canadian Black History Activity Book for Kids, Volume 1, 
was released in October of 2018. And this was actually just meant to be a one-off book just to see, you know, if people were interested just because there weren't very many books about Canadian Black history that were available that were on the market. Because oftentimes, even though I'm based in Canada, when schools are focusing on Black history, they focus on America. So they focus on the heavy hitters like Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, Malcolm X, Civil Rights Movement, all incredible and necessary stories that need to be told. But as I mentioned earlier, we have our Rosa Parks in Canada, we have Viola Desmond, and we have so many phenomenal people here that, that need to be celebrated. So essentially what I did with this first book is I created an alphabet of 26 different people, and it's an activity book, as you said. So each page has coloring opportunities. There's a blurb at the bottom that shares the story about what that person has accomplished. And although it is mainly specific to Canada, there are a lot of Americans who, you know, people that were born in America and then immigrated to Canada, sorry, yeah, immigrated to Canada were included in the book as well, like Harriet Tubman. We have Ferguson, Arthur Jenkins, who's a baseball player. So it really does celebrate Black history in North America. But I just wanted to create a resource where young kids can be inspired young Black kids specifically be inspired by people who look like them so they know that whatever dream they have, they can accomplish it. So what's really interesting is I thought this was really going to work for kids, but a lot of parents have told me that they bought the book, they sat down and they were reading the stories with their kids and they learned a lot as well. So that was a really beautiful surprise. What's really fascinating about the book itself is that you intentionally made it for a higher level reading. So then the parents can get involved. And so parents and teachers can get involved with the students. In terms of your interactions with the parents, have you found that they have learned more and then also doing that activity with their children, they were able to then have a relationship with them on a deeper level and this basic understanding of who they are as Black Canadians? Yeah, well, what's really interesting is, as I mentioned, a lot of adults learned while they were reading the stories to their kids. I actually have a lot of adults who buy the book just for themselves because they feel embarrassed that they don't know about these stories and they're in their 40s or 50s and lived in Canada their entire lives. They're like, how have we not heard about these stories and these, these trailblazers? And it's simply because the stories weren't available. There are so few books that are specific to Canadian Black history that are available that it's not surprising that these stories aren't, you know, readily available. And because of the school curriculums in each province in Canada, it's not mandatory to include Black history in the curriculum. So if it's not being enforced, teachers aren't going to do it. And especially when the majority of teachers aren't people of color, they don't feel that connection to Black history. So it makes perfect sense. But it is... I do have a lot of adults and parents that say that, you know, it is a nice bonding experience that they do have with their kids when they're sitting down and reading these stories together, when they're doing the quizzes at the end of the book together. So it, it is really beautiful to see that it's bringing families closer together. So you wrote the first book in 2018. It was published then? Yeah, so I actually co-wrote it. I do have a co-author co named Tammy Gabay. So the first one came out in 2018. Then the second one, because the popularity of volume one, volume two was then produced in 2020. 
And this one is co-written, I have a twin brother and this one's co-written by my twin brother. So it's the same concept as the other one where there's coloring opportunities on each page. However, rather than this one being broken down in an alphabet, this one's broken down by province and territory. But I mean, I also included some stickers in this one to make it really, really fun and engaging for kids. But uh, yeah, there's, there's still fun coloring opportunities. And it really is a great way for kids to learn about history because it's more playful and, and fun for them. So they actually look forward to opening up the book as opposed to a regular textbook that doesn't have any pictures or, or fun activities. So it's been, it's been, been really fun working with the kids and, and educating them about you know, people who have paved the way for them. Yeah, I really love stickers. I'm a real sticker, sticker freak. As am I, clearly. <laughs> yes. So how, how did you start Big Dreamers? Was that because of the book or was it before and then you wrote the book in order to help Big Dreamers get out into the public? Yeah, so basically Big Dreamers was started because I saw that there was a demand for these, these books and products. I also have sticker sheets. We were just talking about stickers before. I've got a Black Girl Magic sticker sheet, Black Boy Joy sticker sheet, Black History Month sticker sheets. But there were just so many products that I was developing and, and wanted to develop that I figured, you know, let me just create a company to house all these products and make it official. And as you said, I have three books. The third one actually, the third one's not volume three. The third one's actually a fully illustrated, full color storybook. And it's all rhyming verses. Wow. Yeah. So it's honestly, it's been so much fun working on these. I, I love being able to share these stories. I am working on Big Dreamers volume three though. So that will come out hopefully in October or November. So you said that you are a twin and you and your brother wrote the second volume to the, to the book. Your brother is also, he's an actor, isn't he? Yeah, he's an actor, playwright, spoken word artist. He's a, he's a creator. <laughs> yeah. And so you also work with another organization called Overture for the Arts, where you help people understand and you guys put on different that's what I'm looking for performances you guys put oh, on different yeah. performances and stuff about um, the black experience and different involving local black talent in those performances can you speak more about that yeah, so Overture with the Arts is actually a nonprofit organization that I founded myself in 2009. So my background is actually in, you know, the entertainment industry. I earned my bachelor's in arts, music, and entertainment management. I studied in Liverpool, England. And when I moved back from England and I came back to Montreal, I wanted to basically do something that kind of married working within the arts and working with kids because those are two of my passions. And I ended up managing a couple performing arts schools. And although they were great schools and offered great programs, they were just so expensive and they weren't accessible to all youth. So I decided that I wanted to start an organization that offered, you know, high quality arts programs with established artists. And anyone from any socioeconomic background would be able to take part. So 80 to 85% of the programs are free. We do a variety of in-school programs where we'll go in and do maybe spoken word workshops, 
Uh, we'll do some visual arts workshops and we have after school programs as well, where we've offered songwriting and students get to go to recording studios and produce their songs. We do DJ workshops and, and we have all the equipment available so kids don't have to worry about, okay, well, if I want to be a DJ, how can I do it if I don't have the equipment? Well, just come to our after school program and we've got the turntables there for you. So I just, I really want to create an organization that kept kids engaged and allowed them to create in a safe and positive environment. So it's been 13 years and we're still going strong and over 65,000 youth have taken part in our in-school and after-school programs. Is that within the local, you are which you in Montreal? Yeah, so I'm in Montreal, Quebec, but we have offered programs as well in Toronto, Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver. So it is nationwide to a certain degree, but the core of our programming is in Montreal. That's incredible. It's a sixty-five thousand youth. That that's a, that's a real that's a real mark to make. That yeah, it's been honestly, it's been incredibly rewarding and fulfilling. I, I absolutely love working with youth, and I love being able to see youth. You know, week one of a program, they're a little more shy and reserved. And then by week eight, they're, you know, belting out Whitney Houston songs. So it, it's really a, a rewarding, you know, program to run. That's really fascinating. Have you found that people who necessarily wouldn't be able to speak their opinion about something generally can be able to do so using the arts? Yeah, a lot of what we do is arts for social change. So we don't want kids to just, you know, sing pretty songs. We want the songs to actually have, you know, important messages. So absolutely, if, you know, a kid is not, let's say, comfortable just saying something to, let's say, one of their peers face-to-face, they could write a spoken word piece about it and perform it. So it does allow them the opportunity to express their emotion um, through art. So. Why the name Big Dreamers? So the company name Big Dreamers basically stems from the name of my first book. (laughs) It's called Big Dreamers. And to be honest, everyone just assumed with my first book that it was an official company and would just call it Big Dreamers. So I just went along with it. (laughs) But I, I do like how it has that double meaning, how it's really inspiring youth to reach for their dreams and to dream big. So, and I mean, the people featured in my book, they are absolutely big dreamers. They had, they dreamt the biggest dreams and accomplished them. So I just thought it was a fitting name. Did you have a mentor to help you in terms of both with, well, first off with Overture, the arts, how were they able to help you out with establishing that as an organization? Yeah, so I did have a few mentors along the way when I was setting up my organization because I didn't come from a background that was in the nonprofit or charity sector. So I was able to connect with a few people who had started their their own organizations previously. So they kind of showed me the ropes, but it also was a lot about going to different networking events and meeting different like-minded individuals to learn about different funding opportunities, to learn about different like committees that I should be sitting on. So mentorship was a part of it, but it's also about being a go-getter and going to those networking events. Were there any issues you encountered when you first established Overture for the Arts and even Big Dreamers? I would say there are a few challenges more so with 
my nonprofit organization, just mainly because when you're a new organization, people kind of look at you like, hmm, is this legitimate? What are you actually trying to do? So they doubt you. And oftentimes when you're applying for funding, you can't, you're not eligible unless you've been in existence for at least two years. You have to have, you know, 24 months of operations before you're eligible for any funding. So, you know, we had to get creative and just do our own fundraisers that, you know, did not make us be at the mercy of the funders. But even with that, hosting fundraisers when you're new, sometimes people are just like, but who are you guys? <laughs> because we're so new, they don't recognize the name. But obviously, you know, my my family and friends really rallied behind me. And then that really did help make a difference. And in terms of big dreamers, I didn't really have any, I wouldn't really say challenges for that. Because as you'd mentioned earlier, through my nonprofit organization, we do a lot to educate about Black history. So we also do an annual Black History Month school tour where we use spoken word and music and combine it with history lessons. And we've created this 45-minute interactive presentation. And we go into schools and deliver these presentations. And when I say we, my twin brother is the host. So because I already had those relationships with these schools, it did make things a lot easier for me when I had my book, because when they saw that there was an actual resource where they could physically have a book that had all this information, schools just came calling. So it was actually easy in the sense that I built all these relationships over the you know 10 years that I had Overture at the time when my first book came out. And then it just grew from there to start to snowball. Did you have any difficulty getting your book into the hands of educators? in terms of either like red tape or anything else? Not really. I mean, the only bit of pushback that I would get, and it's not even pushback, is that educators saw the value in the book and, and really were grateful for the material and the content that was created. Schools lack the budgets. So they would want to buy one book. And I actually had teachers ask me, well, it's an activity book. Can I photocopy the pages? And you kind of look at them and think, what are copyright laws? Why would you think you could photocopy my book? So I guess that was a challenge that teachers just weren't using common sense and thought, well, it's a coloring page, no big deal. Well, it is a big deal because you can't just go and photocopy someone's full book and make 30 copies and distribute it to your kids. That's not how it worked. But I mean, I would say that was the only, the only major challenge that I faced. And in doing that, what you can then do is having and having individual books those students and take those books home to their parents and then look at it and they're like interesting at it then they thumb through it and learn along with the with the kid as well exactly so there's definitely value in buying you know a classroom set for that group of kids that school year because it's not something that I don't personally think it's something that you should buy and then, you know, limit the, the participation to only what's happening during school hours for the kids. The kids should be able to take it home and show their parents and, and do the activities with, the, you know, with their parents. So I do have some schools that buy classroom sets every year. So I've got those return and repeat customers, whereas I have other schools where they'll buy one classroom set, put it in the library, and if classes want to use it, they've got to go to the library to use it. And they can't write in it. So it kind of defeats the purpose of having an activity coloring book. But I mean, that, I guess, yeah, yeah, that's more of a a 
political issue in terms of funding. <laughs> so, yeah. speaking of political issues, in a couple of of interviews, you have mentioned that the the N word was used in different historical books when referring to to black people in terms of just different historical narratives. Do you think that that will be going away soon, or do you think that that is something that will be fought to stay because of the just the fact that it's a part of history? I mean, it's such a heated debate in Canada and in the U.S. about whether or not these books should be removed from the schools. I personally think it absolutely should be removed. Because if someone is telling you they're offended by something, you need to listen to them and respect them. Yes, you know, decades ago, it was acceptable to use that word. It was a norm. I will never understand why that was a norm. It's just, you know, it's disgusting vocabulary. It should not ever have been used. But the fact that we're in 2022 and we're still traumatizing young Black kids when they hear these words being read on the pages of their books is unacceptable to me. So, I mean, if it's a matter of reprinting the books without that word, then do it. It's really that simple. It's the responsibility of the author and the publisher to ensure that they're not offending anyone when they're creating these materials that are educational tools. And it's in books that are for, would you say, what, what age rate would you say that these books oh. are targeted for? I would say as young as elementary school, I've seen it in. Really? Yeah. And there's nothing acceptable about that. Yeah, yeah. That is, that's way too young to be exposed it's to that disturbing. sort of... It's yeah. disturbing. Yeah. So in terms of building big dreamers and even overture for the art, what have you found? What what tools and resources have you found to be helpful in establishing yourself as a nonprofit and also in terms of writing your first book? So I would say for my nonprofit, the tools that were helpful was really just going to any networking event or opportunity that was available just to, you know, to speak to other executive directors and find out, you know, what challenges they face, what works for them, what doesn't work for them. And it's just really aligning myself with the right network of people. So that was really helpful because as I said, like I didn't have a background in the nonprofit or charity sector. So it really was, I threw myself into the deep end. I was like, no, I'll figure this out. <laughs> and a lot of it, yes, I did figure out by researching online on my own, but it definitely was helpful having, you know, a few of those people that I could just pick up the phone and call them and ask them like, so what do I do in this situation? So that was helpful. And for Big Dreamers, my publishing company, again, I guess I have this thing where I like to put myself in situations where I don't know what I'm doing and figure it out because I was not a writer. I did not have a background whatsoever in publishing, but I figured that, you know, we're in an era where everything is basically so easily accessible at your fingertips with Google. And I just Googled things. I went on Google, I went on YouTube, figured out what I needed. I knew that I needed an ISBN number if I wanted my books to be in bookstores and in retail outlets. So 
I just, you know, was learning as I, as I went along and actually just to go back to what I mentioned earlier, how I said we do Overture with the Arts as an annual Black History Month school tour, and I developed those relationships with schools. Well, with my nonprofit organization, Overture with the Arts, I developed relationships with, there's one specific retailer called Indigo, um, and we actually did activities in that store. So we would do little sing-alongs for kids and it would bring in customers to the store. So because I'd been working with them for so long and Indigo's a national retail chain is probably the biggest one in Canada. So as soon as my book came out, they're just like, what do you mean you wrote this book? What? <laughs> so right away, they're like, great. So you're going to come do book signings? <laughs> and they have me at their store every few months doing book signings, the, the one that's nearest to me. But they also reached out to, to other indigo locations in different provinces to help me get my books in those stores so it's really about building those relationships have there been any books that you would say were instrumental in you understand how to become an entrepreneur in terms of establishing first your nonprofit and then big dreamers to be honest no i didn't read any books to kind of guide me on my entrepreneurship journey it was really just like figuring it out along the way, troubleshooting, watching some YouTube videos. So no, I, I honestly wouldn't, I personally can't recommend any books because that's not the path that helped me. It's not the path that I took. But the path that you did take was in a degree in the arts and mm -hmm. in music, correct? So it's entertainment management, so arts, music, and entertainment management. So I wasn't actually on the performance side. I was behind the scenes in the management side. So learning about marketing, a little bit of contract law, budgeting, grant writing, business plan writing. So that's really what I studied. So have you ever collaborated with your, with your brother on some different performances and shows? No, actually, I haven't. Well, my brother actually lives on the other side of the country. I'm in Eastern Canada, and he's in Western Canada in Vancouver. But even before he moved, we never actually collaborated. He does, as I said earlier, host the Black History Month school tour that we do. But apart from that, and then he co-wrote Big Dreamers Volume 2, but we haven't actually, you know, worked on a project exclusively together. Okay. So have you um, been wanting to? Is that something you guys are planning on yeah. doing sometime soon? Or? Yeah. I mean, it's something that, you know, we would like to do, but we're both so busy. So if it happens, it happens. But we both have so much going on on the different sides of the country. <laughs> so maybe one day. That would be really nice, a nice thing to see. And so in terms of current state of events, the pandemic, how were you then able to take Big Dreamers and doing the in-school tours once places started to shut down? How were you then able to transfer that? Or did you transfer that to a virtual environment or did you just continue to do it in person at a later date? So we did. And what's really interesting is when the pandemic first hit, uh, we were doing our tour in person still. So we were on tour in February 2020, literally going from flight to flight, traveling across the country. And then the whole world essentially shut down in March. I mean, where I am in Montreal, everything, including schools, shut down. And I'll never forget this on Friday, March 13th. <laughs> and I remember because it was Friday the 13th. Yeah. <laughs> so we were able to do that full tour in 2020 in person. But then we had to adapt and shift to virtual for 2021. 
there were a lot of schools that were like, oh, well, is it possible to do it in person? But then because of Christmas and all the gatherings that were not supposed to be so large, those happened. So we had to tell schools, like, unfortunately, it's virtual or no presentation because it's just not safe to to be traveling to schools with hundreds of kids who could potentially be carriers. So 2021 and actually 2022 as well, even though, you know, at this point, the vaccine has been available. I think in February, in February, 2022, most people were just double vaxxed and the third dose wasn't available. The the booster wasn't available, but now I think probably about 70 to 80% of Canadians have been triple vaxxed. So as of next year, we'll be doing in-person again. I think it'll be a hybrid of both though. I don't think it's just going to be strictly in-person or strictly, strictly, sorry, virtual. I think if we do a mix of both, that's what's going to work best. And I feel like a lot of companies that's going to work best as well. Like working from home for a lot of employees or, you know, a portion of the employees going into the office. I don't think we necessarily need to have employees going into the office nine to five every day anymore. I think we've proven that, you know, companies can operate without having that. Yeah. And so have you found it to be easier or more difficult to do your presentations virtually? Let's say it's 50-50. So it's easier because we have the luxury of not having to travel because the travel was a lot. We would basically have to figure out, okay, so we're at this school this morning. We finish here at 11. We need 30 to 45 minutes to drive to the next next school, set up at the next school. So not having that to factor in anymore has been a huge weight lifted off our shoulders. But then at the same time with virtual, it's not as interactive, although we do allow for questions and students can write their questions in the chat box or virtually raise their hand. You're not feeding off the energy of the students when you're in person. Well, one of the things that you did when you were virtual in 2020 was that you created a series of short videos highlighting different Black people within various communities around Canada. Mm -hmm. And can you talk more about that? It's called Beyond February, is that correct? Yes, it is. And the purpose of the Beyond February series is to basically let educators know like Black history education goes beyond the month of February. It's not just for that 28-day period. You don't just shut off as of March 1st. Black history is Canadian history, and we need to be sharing and including these stories in the curriculum year-round. So we created, you know, another resource where now there's, you know, a different form of media where they can learn about a lot of these stories. So we currently have, I think it's five videos now uh, where we talk about, so there's different historic Black communities in Canada. We talk about Little Burgundy in Montreal, uh, Hogan's Alley in Vancouver. And then we talk about trailblazers like Henry Barnes. Uh, we also talk about Gloria Bayless. And then drawing a blank of the third person, but there is a third person and it'll come to me in a second. <laughs> so we just really wanted to, to share these stories and make it really easy to digest. And so Little Burgundy, that's a place where it was like small little jazz enclave in terms of it was called, what's it called? The, the Harlem of Canada? Harlem of the North. Of the North. And it was, yeah, a lot of different, even like American artists. And one of my favorites, Oscar, he yes. is an absolute gem. And I remember he the, 
Yeah, and he does various. I really like his. I think that he did a album that's just completely. I think it's some of those traditional bossa nova songs, but he puts his own unique spin on it, and it's just beautiful. Well, he's a national treasure here in Canada, and especially in Montreal and Little Burgundy, because his presence in Little Burgundy is always going to be there because we have. We used to have the Negro Community Center here in Montreal, and Oscar Peterson actually learned how to play the piano at that center. His sister taught him how to play the piano. We also have another legendary piano player from Montreal called Dr. Oliver Jones, and he also learned how to play piano at the Negro Community Center. So there's just so much rich history in Little Burgundy in Montreal. And you had mentioned the Harlem of the North, and that term was coined because of actually a person featured in my second book. His name is Rufus Rockhead, and he was the first Black club owner in Montreal. So he had a club here called Rockhead's Paradise, and he would bring in artists from the States. So when artists in the States weren't allowed to perform because of racism, he was like, oh, cool. So you guys are racist in the States? Come over to Montreal. We'll open you, have you perform here, and we'll welcome you with open arms. So he brought in so many phenomenal jazz musicians like Billy not Billy Holiday, I'm lying, that's not true. <laughs> Ella Fitzgerald. He gave platforms to people like Oscar Peterson, Dr. Oliver Jones. And it was just such a popular club for so many years. So because he was bringing in these artists from America, we basically got the name the Harlem of the North here in Montreal's Little Burgundy. So it's just such an incredible place. And people don't even know about it who live in Montreal. Yeah, and it seems as if that could be something that if people, they can connect back to, like if they had, like as you said, Ella Fitzgerald went there, and if there was something that people could connect to with Ella Fitzgerald, they could could also connect to Little Burgundy, and that that was a place that she performed in, yeah. Yeah, and, and what's funny to me is there's actually a popular chain of shoe stores in Montreal called Little Burgundy. I don't know oh. why they named it that, but this is not a Black-owned company. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> yeah. So what's funny is when we go into schools and we talk about Little Burgundy, we ask the question, who here has heard of Little Burgundy? And kids are dead serious. They raise their hand they're like, oh yeah, me, the shoe store. And you're like, we're here to talk about <laughs> Black history. Why would you think that we're talking about a popular shoe store that sells stilettos? <laughs> no. <laughs> so it's just interesting how people, you know, don't even know what's happening or what has happened in their own backyards. Yeah. And so even with what you have put together in terms of all of these different trailblazers and influencers in uh, Black Canadian history, whenever you ask the question, random person on the street who do you know is like a famous black canadian is there a specific answer that they usually give they i'm assuming i don't know for a fact i haven't actually done this i'm assuming they would probably mention a hockey player named pk suban <laughs> but outside of that i i don't know who people would mention I mean, because I'm immersed in this, I would just start, you know, listing off people. But I feel like the average Canadian would probably mention an athlete. An athlete, yeah. Uh, another one is 
Drake. Drake's Canadian. Isn't yeah, Drake that's Canadian? true. Yeah, yeah, athlete Drake. or hip-hop artist. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Athlete or, yeah, musicians, right. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of big dreamers and overture for the art and beyond February, where can people go to learn more about Black Canadian history and even get one of your, a couple of your books that you have? Yeah, so to get any of my books or any of my other products, I also have, for example, a Harriet Tubman jigsaw puzzle. I have a a memory match game with beautiful, inclusive images on it. They can go to my website, which is bigdreamers.ca. And if you want to learn more about the Beyond February web series, you can go to YouTube and just type in bigdreamers.ca and you'll find it on my YouTube channel. And then finally, to learn more about my nonprofit organization, Overture with the Arts, go to owta.org. And another thing about the Beyond February series that's really cool is that you have, it is your your niece and your nephew on a a Zoom call with with the person that you're interviewing. And it's really incredible because it usually seems that like, you know, that, that old show, like uh, kids say the darndest things kind of thing. And yeah. it's that they ask, like, uh, like uh, for one of them, I think it was like, how, 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 how come this guy was a, was a porter? Like, what's a porter? Yeah. And then you explain like, oh, like this was his job, he went on the train, did this, this is what he did. And so it's those like little tiny questions about those little things that people would usually overlook in terms of an, an initial analysis of the thing. And another funny thing is that one of my nieces is named Naomi as well. Oh, nice. <laughs> well, kids are so curious and, and inquisitive. So I just thought it would be a nice touch if elementary school kids saw people, you know, kids their age that were curious to learn about the same topics as them. And it was just, it was really fun working with my niece and nephew because they genuinely wanted to learn more. Like they, I didn't prep them and ask them to ask those questions. Those were their questions. <laughs> Yeah. And so in doing Beyond February, uh, did you have a plan for after the pandemic in terms of setting up virtual meetings and even in the way that you arranged each episode in terms of the formatting? Was that something that, that you did? And where did you learn how to do that? It's really well done, I have to say. Oh, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, Beyond February actually was supposed to be a full 45-minute documentary to begin with. So when we were pre-pandemic, February 2020, my twin brother and I were traveling to these areas and and getting footage of these areas with a, a film crew. And we were actually planning on going to two other provinces to film there and create a documentary called Beyond February to highlight these incredible historical Black communities and these phenomenal people. But then because the pandemic, we couldn't film. So we figured, okay, well, we have this footage, we need to do something with it. So that's actually why we decided to make short little capsules that were five minute educational, you know, videos and turn it into an actual video series. So we still do have some more footage that we need to go through. So we'll probably release another video in a month or so. We don't necessarily have like a release schedule just because it's really dependent on what footage we can, we can get in the future. 
but we do plan on doing the full length uh, Beyond February documentary, where it's essentially just following me as I go on a journey to educate youth about Canadian Black history. So it's going to be, you know, a bit of the school tour that my twin brother and I do. Me maybe at a book signing, meeting with people that are featured in the book, uh, but it really is going to be a journey uh, celebrating Canadian Black history. And in learning about Canadian Black history, do you think that, I mean, of course, you know, the answer is absolutely, but do you believe that the American school system should also be highlighting different Black Canadian trailblazers and different just people who have like fought the good fight and done incredible things that are historical in the nature as you said lawyer bayless in terms of first setting a precedent for people of yeah. color for women for anyone to not be discriminated against whenever entering a institution of hospitality would you say that american students the kids in the united states should also learn about Canadian Black history and its effect, uh, even on the Americas, because I believe that isn't Elijah McCoy. He's Canadian. Yeah, right? but he was He's, born born in the states. Yeah, he was born in the states, but he moved to Canada, and he's the that phrase, the real McCoy. Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Inventor, patent holder, incredible. Yeah, he invented the ironing board, the sprinkler. He's just a phenomenal person. So I absolutely do think that American schools should include Canadian Black history as part of their lessons as well. Because, you know, so many people think that Canada was a safe haven that was void of slavery and void of racism, as I mentioned earlier, because of the Underground Railroad. Because there's this rich history of, you know, Harriet Tubman leading enslaved people from Southern America to Northern Canada. So it's like, well, yes, there, there is that element, but there are still so many ties. I mean, being Canada, being neighbors with America, there, there's so many ties to our history. And I mean, we were talking about earlier, Little Burgundy. So in Little Burgundy, we have one of the oldest black churches in Canada called Union United Church. And we have people like Malcolm X who actually met his wife at that church. And he's wow. American. So there are so many incredible stories within Canadian Black history that will fascinate Americans as well, and that tie in so well to American Black history. So I think it should be included. Will it be? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Hopefully in the future, yeah. sometime soon. Yeah, hopefully in Texas, you can start promoting my books. Yes, exactly. And so, Akila, I have one last question to ask you. If you had the opportunity to send a worldwide text, what okay. would your message be? If you can dream it, you can achieve it. Just always dream big. That Why would that be your message? Because I'm all about dreaming, dreaming the biggest dreams and chasing my dreams, clearly. <laughs> Starting a publishing company without having any background in that. I just want kids to know that, you know, they're they're worthy and they're valued and whatever dream they have no matter the size no matter it being big or small their dreams are valid like you thank you so much for your time it's been a pleasure talking to you and learning a whole bunch about american history from you so thank you very much thank you so much
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Black Gold Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the show on Instagram at the Black Gold Pod in order to be updated about new episodes each week. In order to listen to incredible and inspiring stories, please go to the Black Gold Podcast website and make a donation so the stories of these incredible and amazing people will be waiting for you each and every week so that you may be inspired and become an inspiration to someone else. If you want to stay updated on the podcast or be in the know with the various things that I'm up to, you can sign up for the MTY Midweek Newsletter. When you sign up, you'll get access to a weekly email every Wednesday with behind the scenes of the podcast and other projects that I am currently up to. So make sure to visit blackgoldpod.com and sign up for the MTY Midweek Wednesday Newsletter below.